uh, I thought that, I know that we did this last week, but um, Matthew chapter 18, as, as we observed, in, in all of its uh, principal divisions, deals with the removal of offenses, stumbling blocks in, in relationships. We can't uh, cover all of it by way of exposition, so I thought we would cover it again, at least by, by reading. And I don't uh, draw back from such repetitions. If I might paraphrase the, the apostle, it's not tedious for me, uh, but for you, it is safe. So let us give our attention and re, uh, receive instruction from God's word on this uh, important subject. Verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever and whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to the man by whom the offense cometh, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. How think ye? If a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth <coughs> shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, 
it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with <coughs> compassion and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by his throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. So I remember years ago, uh, after discovering the, the um, regulative principle of worship, the, the idea that, um, that worship, uh, that uh, God gives commandments concerning his worship and that those commandments are not to be altered, we are not to omit anything that he has commanded from his worship, but neither are we free to uh, add to it. I guess the, the idea is that in the king's court, um, the king's pleasure is observed. If you've ever, I know we, in the United States, we, we have little feeling for monarchy, but maybe if you've seen an old movie or something where uh, common people go into the court of a king. The manners of the court are to be observed, those things that please the king. So maybe you've seen certain practices like um, there to kneel before the king or maybe other things like you're never to show your back to the king, but you back out of the king's presence, whatever. But the idea is that the will of the king is observed in his court. And so it is with worship. Um, haven't we had enough time to please ourselves when we come into uh, the king's court to worship him? It is to do his pleasure, to do the things that delight him, to do the things that magnify his glory. 
And of course, we need his instruction on how to do that. Our sin darkened minds don't know. So as I took that idea and began to uh, apply it to the ordinances, I at some point came to uh, the Lord's Supper and its and its proper administration. And I started to wrestle with the problem that the Roman Catholic Mass had introduced. You might say it's a problem that it left for Protestants. Um, as our uh, Scottish forebears wrestled with this, it was it was in direct contact with the partial Reformation in England. Now you remember the mistake that had been made by Roman Catholicism was the idea that um, the Mass was actually a bloodless resacrificing of Christ, and even the way that the room was arranged was meant to reinforce that idea. So all of the people are gazing forward to something that is called an altar upon which a priest is offering a sacrifice. And when the Reformation spread into Scotland and they began to uh, examine these things, they were reminded by the scripture of some very obvious facts, which is the supper is a supper, not a sacrifice. And so to, to get rid of the old notion that was deeply embedded in the minds of the people, it was important to get rid of the idea of an altar, right? Altars are for sacrifices. Tables are for suppers and uh, to uh, reinstitute what they called table gestures. Since we are enjoying a supper together, it is fitting for us to sit around that, that table and observe table gestures. And so now everything, just as it was done when the Lord instituted the, the ordinance, right? It's a reinstitution of the way it was done by the Lord. But everything then is meant to reinforce its significance, which is the Lord Jesus Christ it, um, having won for us the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God is inviting us into a table fellowship. It is a communion. And there's something very sweet, very intimate. The Lord is inviting us to his table. He is inviting us there together as a community. And that was something that really changed for me. Like up, up to that point, um, it's kind of strange. Like the Lord's Supper, although in, celebrated in public, had been a very private thing, right? Because I have my, my little piece of bread and my, my little cup. Um, and it always felt inappropriate to be looking at other people, right? So it still was a very private sort of thing. But um, the Lord's Supper is a community or a communal thing. And even the reorientation of our bodies one toward another reinforces that idea. But at any rate, the Lord is inviting us to fellowship He's inviting us not just as a collection of individuals, but he's inviting us together as a believing community. And in it, he's not being re-sacrificed, but he's, he's calling upon us to uh, feed upon him by faith. Um, that is to actually, by faith, draw upon his redemptive benefits as they are being displayed to us. So as the words of institution are proclaimed, um, we are reminded of his death, what it is purchased, and we are being called upon to feed upon those, those benefits and to do so by <laughs> faith. Now, I, I bring all of this up, and this is relevant for forgiveness because... Um, I was probably convinced of this for a year or two before I ever got to see it actually done. 
The simple fact of the matter is I didn't know of any place where it was actually being done. And it took me a long place to, a long time to find such a place. But fast forward a year or two, and finally, um, uh, I was in the congregation in Northern Virginia. Dr. Young traveled down, and I, I got to see it. But something very strange happened, something that had really not been part of my studies. In sitting at the table with believers, and hearing the words of institution proclaimed, and, and Dr. Young's table address at that particular time really highlighted the fact, as the apostle says, that we are proclaiming our unity, that we are one body, one bread, one loaf, one lump. And it occurred to me as I'm sitting, now I'm no longer peering at my little piece of bread and my little wine, a bit of wine alone in a pew. Now I'm sitting at a table looking at my brethren in the face and testifying publicly that we are we are indeed one. We're of one mind, we are of one heart. And it occurred to me really for the first time, but like a thunderclap, uh, just how difficult, like it would be comparatively easy for me to be at odds with my brother while I'm staring down at my little piece of bread and little bit of wine. Harder when those great words are being proclaimed and I'm looking at my brother in his face and in his eyes. And it, it was deeply impressed upon me. You might think of the work that we, we have done recently in Matthew chapter 5. That when we come for worship, the Lord would have us to have our relationships in a good state of repair indeed. And so forgiveness is really important. As, as, we, as we pointed out, because we're all sinners... And because we don't just sin a little bit sometimes, but sinning quite a bit all of the time, sometimes in ways we recognize, but probably in untold multitudes of ways that we don't even recognize, every one of those sins has the potential to sink a relationship. And it's really only the mercy and restraining hand of God that it prevents but the, the exercise of grace that prevents it from doing so is forgiveness. So the simple fact of the matter is, if we're not able to forgive, we're not going to be able to sustain relationships with other sinners. We need to be forgiven, and we need to forgive, and that's the only way that there can be relationships. Now, some things that we noticed about forgiveness, I, I didn't want to look at it in like the isolation of the definition, but in the richness of the concept and its connection to other concepts. We talked about its root in love. Love delights in the beloved. The old theologians called it complacency. There's a there's a resting of the heart in the beloved. And uh, um, love desires the welfare of the beloved. And you can see how forgiveness would very naturally flow out of it. Because there is that complacency in the beloved, there's a desire for relationship. And that's going to mean um, dealing with offenses and putting them behind, right? Forgiveness. And... Um, Forgiveness uh, puts away wrath, anger, malice, the desire for any sort of uh, retributive pain, right? And this is an exercise, this love as well, because love desires the welfare of uh, the beloved, right? So you see how all of this is moving from love um, through the instrumentality of forgiveness unto relationship. It's, it's maintenance. 
And if we're going to walk together with, with any degree of closeness, it, as relationships get closer, we start to notice more and more one another's uh, sinfulness. And that, that particular dynamic probably reaches its apex in, in marriage. There, there isn't any closer human relationship, and so, so all of the sins are <laughs> going to be pretty much uh, visible. And our ability to deal with offenses is going to um, is going to be exercised more and more as the closeness in relationships um, advances. So then we started to talk about the the practicalities of dealing with offenses, exercising forgiveness in relationships. And we see that the Lord Jesus, whichever way we turn, is not going to let us off the hook. So if I'm the offender, and whether that offense is real or imaginary, the Lord doesn't let us off the hook either way. If I'm the offender, if I know that my brother has taken offense, then I'm to go to him and endeavor to clear the offense so that the relationship continue unhindered. If I have indeed sin, uh, sin I go with uh, sincerity of heart, apologetic words, and restitution as far as that is able to uh, be made. If that's the biblical command, and it is in Matthew chapter 5, then obviously there's the implied duty on the part of the, of the one that's been offended to actually forgive so that the relationship can be restored. If the if the offense has just been imagined, we still have to go with an explanation to clear the offense. And in that particular case, the, the implied responsibility of the one who had taken offense is to receive that just defense so that, again, the relationship can be righted with the uh, stumbling block removed from the relationship. So if I'm the offender, I go. But then if I'm the offended, the Lord gives us the same counsel. Now, I, I dealt with a, um, with a caveat. Uh, sometimes when someone has sinned against us, really, Probably the first thing we need to do is consider whether or not it's just an offense that ought to be forborne, that is just passed over in love. And if you think about it, if we're sinning at the, at the rate that the Bible leads us to believe, and we are, if we were to attempt to deal with every sin that we noticed, we would be constantly paralyzed, right? So there's always going to have to be a, um, a healthy and judicious exercise of forbearance. Um, you know, so we, we ask ourselves questions and we let love be the guide. Is, is this the time to deal with this with uh, the beloved? Um, is this such a kind of offense that the beloved's really... Um, hurting himself or damaging the relationship or whatever, but love is going to think through a handful of kinds of things in determining whether or not this particular offense is something to be dealt with at this time or simply passed over. But um, But if we really love... Sometimes some things just can't be passed over. And this doesn't deal with all of it. We, we enter into such a complexity here that I can't deal with, with everything. But when we see that a particular sin is going to be hurtful to the beloved, that this is something that's really hurtful. I mean, every sin is, but there are degrees of this and we recognize it. Then love is really going to desire to have that removed just as soon as possible. You might think of uh, Leviticus ch uh, chapter 19. Maybe let's turn there just very briefly. 
we do live in an age where uh, we're told that um, really love does nothing but pass over offenses. But um, love will do that at times. But, but at the end of the day, love doesn't want to leave any offense upon the, uh, upon the beloved, but is always thinking through, like, what, what's the most helpful thing actually to do now? Deal with it or delay it? Um, <coughs> Uh, verse 17, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any way, any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Our culture almost universally treats a rebuke as hateful. Like if you tell somebody they've done the wrong thing, then obviously you're... Um, you're some sort of hateful bigot or something like that. Um, but here Moses tells us that it is that it is an act of love to to do so. right? So what are some situations in which love is going to want to engage the beloved? I can give you at least two. When the sin is of such a kind that the um, that the beloved is really hurting him or herself, then love is going to want to get that removed. And so it's going to want to engage. Also, when the sin is of such a kind that um, that the relationship really can't be continued while the offense remains, and we'll talk about some of the specifics in that, love is going to want to have that removed. Because there are some kinds of sins where there can be forgiveness in the sense I can do the heart work and I can put away wrath, malice, and a desire to inflict hurt. I can put away all of those things. And I can, I can really stir up the desire for the restoration of a relationship. But there are some kinds of sins that would make the restoration of that relationship unadvisable. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those. But just keep those things in mind. Those would be some situations in which love would be moved and moved swiftly to engage the beloved to try to get the sin removed. So look with me now at Matthew chapter 15, uh, 18. We'll look at verse 15, this very famous text. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So first of all, look back at verse 15. This is why I say the Lord just will not let, let us off the hook with respect to our relationships. If I'm the offender, I'm told to go, Matthew 5. If I'm the offended, I'm told to go, right? Um, so offender or offended, I have the responsibility to go and try to remove the stumbling block from the relationship so that the relationship can continue uh, unhindered. Notice also um, th there's a certain sort of loving tenderness in this. We tend to think of when we talk about church discipline, we, we tend to just think of its final painful and even frightful motions. But I no longer think about church discipline that way. I might even say that those last movements of church discipline are like 1% of it or something like that. 
most of what happens in church discipline is, um, you know, we're, we're together, we live together, and it's not the thundering of the excommunication, but it's the daily, hey, hey brother, that, that thing you're doing, you might not want to do that. <laughs> Right? It's that it's that gentle daily uh, sharpening of one another in that in that regard, and and most of it is done uh, with a with a whisper rather than in in thundering. Uh, hey, have you thought about trying this? Oh, be careful! Don't do that. <laughs> Those kinds of interactions by the thousands and thousands of thousands not just the thundering at the end and uh, when those gentle things are efficacious then you don't end up at the end of uh, the the procedure and i say it's really gentle there's something tender about it because you'll notice in the handling of offenses there's this desire to to keep the report of the offense in the smallest sphere possible. And of course, love does that too. Love doesn't have any desire to embarrass the beloved or make the beloved's faults objects of gossip or whatever. Right, so the, the first move here is to deal with it one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Also, um, there is something about this that's very much in conformity with human nature. The more public something becomes, um, the more pride becomes inflamed, and the more likely somebody is to dig their heels in and try to justify what they've done your best chances are normally one-on-one. -on -one. It's a, And it's been an interesting kind of thing. And let me just give this as a, as a bit of experience. A lot of times people think that pastors and elders, like let's get the pastors and elders involved because if they get involved, then like with their experience and their training and everything else, that's most likely to make this better. Uh, this has not been my experience. Uh, my experience is by the time it comes to the pastors and elders, it's usually because somebody's digging their heels in pretty hard. And um, pastors and elders, if rightly called and qualified, have lots of biblical tools at their disposal. But you're talking about biblical tools that are now it might be like this, they're now dealing and probing an inflamed wound. It's not it's not the easiest situation. It's it's the hardest one. Believe it or not, probably the easiest way to get a remedy is in the quietness of a one on one conversation between brothers. Now there is a time for it to come to the ministers and elders, but ministers and elders don't they have biblical tools, but they're no more capable of turning a heart than than you are. I mean, and by the time it comes to them, normally the wound wound is inflamed. Indeed, the very taking of it to them is likely to inflame the wound. I'm not saying that there's not a time to do it. I'm just saying don't romanticize it in your minds. Having been involved in in disciplinary procedures for for 20 years, I can tell you, don't don't romanticize it. It's just difficult by the time it comes uh, to the ministry. So there's there's a gentleness here. There's a there's a wisdom. You can see how this is in keeping with uh, human nature, and there and there is a patience. I mean, sometimes upon a first admonition. Um, repentance will come but sometimes maybe it takes a little bit of time perhaps the offender needs some time to think it meditate wrestle 
with what has been been presented. So we do need to be patient. As a matter of fact, the convening of additional witnesses, um, I would exhort you to not do that until it appears that one in one conversation is now fruitless. Like it's so if there's still hope that perhaps another conversation like the lines of communication are still really open we're still having um, open dialogue concerning these things i wouldn't move on in this procedure until it becomes pretty clear that this conversation is now fruitless and yet this offense needs to get removed so then um, you would move on to uh, the second taking another one or two um, these could these could be witnesses to the original fault um, if there were witnesses to the original fault you'd probably want to take them rather than spreading the news of the offense more broadly right so if four people know about it then those are probably the best four people to be in the room before notifying person five or six but if the um, if the offense was one-on-one -on -one, then other witnesses can be uh, cultivated right one or two can be taken to to watch the conversation to offer advice counsel help um, to see like the spiritual disposition of the parties that are involved to hear the facts and so on and uh, again more people are now involved but still there's this desire to work through it with patience and in the smallest sphere possible but when that doesn't work and that offense still needs to get removed uh, then it's at that point that it that it comes uh, to the church it comes to the uh, the officers but it, but at this point, um, uh, it it should be with a, a measure of fear and trembling on all all parties because at this point uh, we're having a despising of easier means. There's hardness someplace. By the time that it comes to officers, whether it's the accusations need to stop. Or repentance needs to come there needs to be confession one or the other but there's there's hardness someplace um, and, and when there's hardness maybe there just aren't there just aren't any pleasant means left like the tools that are left are hard things that's why I say we 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 tremble when it gets to the point now if the if the elders are judicious wise and patient they will make it as gentle as it can be but you should understand that discipline by its nature is not when you think about the way that god disciplines us in his providence pain is a part of that otherwise it wouldn't be disciplinary um, it's like a parent dealing with a small child through through a spanking if there's not pain it wouldn't be disciplinary that's built into uh, the process but also uh, remember what the when you are a party in this uh, remember and, and correlate it with what we read in, in Matthew chapter 5 Jesus told us to agree quickly and on easy terms right let's try to come to terms on this on easy terms so for one example if you know usually an offense has got a, a a number of things that are involved in it well if if the thing that was really the stumbling block in the relationship got acknowledged confessed and repented of but there are still other things outstanding if those other things are of a lesser moment then we should probably just accept it on those easy terms and then put the offense behind us and move on because if we won't reconcile on easy terms there's going to be the sifting right and so by the time when there's been hardness and it's come to the elders 
you've come to the time of the sifting. Um, the Lord Jesus didn't try to portray that as being pleasant, and and neither do I, nor can I. It's it's not going to be uh, pleasant. It's it's going to be um, it's going to be hard things at that point. So um, I guess by way of summary, do take away the the importance. We can't escape either way. I, we can't say, well, I'm the offended party. I don't have to go. Jesus says go and remove the scandal. Um, we can't say, now, of course, hopefully if we recognize we've actually done something to offend, we should want to go and apologize. But we're not even let off the hook if, like that person, I'm, I didn't do anything to offend that person. They took offense nonsensically or whatever. Still, Jesus says, go, have, have these offenses removed. This is the commandment and the requirement of our Lord. So let me just, let me just, so when we're not successfully closing our relationships, let me just draw into the foreground. It's probably already present in your minds and implicit, but let me just draw it into the foreground. Uh, you can have problems on the part of the offended party, right? They won't they won't receive um, a just defense when they just um, imagined an offense, or they won't receive an apology on easy terms. This would be a forgiveness problem. So that's one way we can fail to close relationships. But there can be failure on the part of the offender too when there's when there's impenitence, uh, especially when the, the sins themselves are particularly destructive to the beloved or when they're destructive to relationships. And I, I want to highlight that second part. Um, go back in your minds to, to the Joseph narrative uh, and maybe while I talk about Joseph, just flip with me really quickly to First uh, Samuel chapter twenty. Uh, but let me just take you back into the Joseph narrative. So you remember um, reminds very much of. Um, First John chapter three, Joseph's brothers end up hating him for for his spirituality, much the same reason that Cain hated Abel. Obviously, Joseph's brothers were not in a good spiritual condition at that point. Uh, their hatred of their brother is such that they contemplate his murder, and then they they sell him into slavery, which is consigning him. Uh, to misery and 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 probably an early death. Um, so um, so those are the kinds of sins that are really destructive to relationships. Uh, it would make it would make it unadvisable to take such a person back to your bosom while they're still in that condition, right? I mean, in some ways, it's it kind of reminds me of what John Murray called sanctified horse sense. You can do the heart work of forgiveness for such a one. Um, don't hate you, not angry at you. I don't even want to hurt you. But it would still be folly for me to bring you near to me when you design my hurt. And that's what's behind Joseph's testing of his brothers when they are reunited those decades later. They don't they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And one of the things that's plain is that Joseph has done the heart work. His heart is toward his brothers, but he needs to know if they've repented. And the test that he devises in order to discover it is to put um, uh, is to put his full brother Benjamin in the same relationship or like in the in the same um in in the same kind of danger right so he he works out a way to uh 
put Benjamin in mortal danger, and then ultimately to, um, like, you, brothers, can all go free, but he's just going to stay here with me as slave. In other words, will they give Benjamin up to slavery the same way they had given Joseph up to slavery the years before? And uh, he finds that his brothers have actually repented. Rather than putting their brother in harm's way, they're willing to put themselves in harm's way to deliver their brother. So now, with that sin actually removed by repentance, then the, the door is open for freedom in relating again. And so freedom in relating is restored again at that point. In God's providence, in, in my translating of, of Matthew Poole, I, I have been, I'm actually in for Samuel 20 right now. And it's a, it's a really interesting narrative. By this point, you will remember, Saul has already tried to kill David. And um, so, like this is the kind of sin, David can forgive Saul. We'll see David later. David's, David's heart is toward Saul. He loves Saul. He loves Saul's house. Um, he's so far from wanting to hurt Saul that his, that his heart smites him when he cuts off a piece of his skirt. Right? So here, here is a man who has done, he has done the heart work. But as long as Saul is murderously disposed to him, the, the relationship really can't be restored. The offense has to be removed. Now, what's interesting about this narrative is David is pretty sure Saul wants to kill him. How do you know? Well, he threw a spear at me. Pretty good evidence, right? But in the meantime, Saul has said to Jonathan, okay, I, I'm not going to try to kill David. And so Jonathan thinks, and if you think about it, there's an intrinsic plausibility. This is not just gullibility on Jonathan's part, I don't believe. I mean, his, his father has told him, okay, I'm not going to try to kill him. But remember that, that Saul has been afflicted by the evil spirit and half crazed at times. So like if he seems like he's in his right mind or whatever, there could be a plausibility while well, he's in his right mind. Maybe he's just trying to kill David. He's just out of his head or whatever, right? So there there are complexities in with what's happening with Saul that, that makes Jonathan's position um, plausible. And so David says to Jonathan, like, I've got to go. Your dad's going to kill me. And Jonathan says, no, he's not. And if he was going to, surely he would, uh, he would open that matter to me. And so very much like Joseph before them, basically what they do is they work out a test for Saul. You guys will remember, maybe I'll just paraphrase this text, but uh, David's presence would be expected in court for the new moon feast. But David is going to purposefully be absent. It appears he's going to go home to Bethlehem instead his absence will be missed and so how it, how does Saul respond to this like we're going to be able to learn a lot about Saul's disposition toward David based upon the way that he responds and all eventually Saul ends up exploding at Jonathan revealing his his true intention toward Saul, that same murderous rage ends up getting turned toward Jonathan. John, Jonathan knows that it's real. And so then he goes out and he gives the signal to David that it's not safe to return. He needs to, he needs to flee. And fleeing is the right, it's the right move at that place. So my point is, there are, there are certain kinds of sins. You can do all of the heart work on your side but if there, are, if there are certain sorts of sins, even in one that's beloved to you, the relationship still can't be, it still can't be restored. I can't give you an itemized list. Obviously, murderous hatred would be one where it's not advisable to bring that person near to you. So I bring all of that up to say there, there are times when you can have a forgiving heart and still not bring somebody back to your bosom.
But I'd also say we need to keep that bridle really tight. When um, when there's somebody that will do you harm if you bring them near or do harm to somebody that is close to you or for whom you are responsible, then there are reasons to keep a person at, at arm's length. But here's the thing. There at that point, we always need to look inside. That's what's going to keep the bridle tight and ask ourselves the question, do I want to have the relationship restored? Because there ought to be that tension. I can't restore it. But you should be able to look inside and say with sincerity, but I want to. And as soon as I see the door open for it, I am going to. Right? Because, of course, if, if Saul had showed better things... David would have restored the relationship. In uh, Joseph's case, the brothers did show better things. And so he did. He did restore the, the relationship, right? But it, as, as are all things in life, all of this really does start with, with heart issues. And so let me just say one, one final thing uh, about this. Like... How seriously ought we to to take this? It's very interesting that that Jesus is always and his forgiveness is given to us as a standard for how we ought to be doing this. That's how tight that bridle ought to be. Um, and maybe a way of turning it and thinking about it in a very useful way is um, your handling of your brother in these kinds of matters and you're extending a forgiveness to your brother ha handle him the way that you want Jesus to handle you that's the comparison that's given to us and it's given to us in a couple of different ways but that's a very helpful way uh, to think about it how do you want to be handled by the Savior with respect to forgiveness then go and do likewise. Let us pray together.